We're heading to a desert island, and we can each only take three consoles and one game for each. Which video games are we playing without electricity? The byword starts now. Ladies and gentle nerds, welcome to a new episode of the Nerd by Word podcast, episode 159. I'm Dave, I'm here with my buddy Chris, and uh, this week we're talking video game consoles and games. But before we jump into our little desert island adventure, it's time for some... Nerd News! Alright Chris, so what's new? Well, the next domino has fallen in the ever-growing Hollywood strike saga. Um, Albeit a small piece, I believe it's significant. Uh, According to The Hollywood Reporter, a group of 66 production employees of Cartoon Network and Warner Brothers Animation has filed a petition uh, petition to the National Labor Relations Board requesting a union election. They are also requesting that Warner Brothers Discovery uh, voluntarily recognize their union and the bargaining committee that it will eventually form, which will all be under the representation of the Animation Guild. In a statement released to the public, Warner Brothers Animation production manager Hannah Ferenc said, quote, Having lived through the existing state of the animation industry for the past seven years, I want to make sure that not only our current workers, but all those who choose to join in the future, uh, join us in the future, can feel secure in following their passion by earning livable wages and being treated with the dignity and respect they deserve, end quote. Now, Ferenc also intimated that while the group represented does not include writers or artists, their skills are highly specialized, and they are an integral part of the animation process. This news, of course, comes on the heels of the SAG-AFTRA and WGA strikes that we talked about last week, uh, and is certainly no coincidence given the fact that WBD in particular has spearheaded the efforts of removing large swaths of content from its streaming platform, Max, a lot of it being animation, in fact, with no prior warning to the creators involved. Uh, The studio also moved to consolidate the production and development resources of Warner Brothers Animation and Cartoon Network last October. It should also be noted that the Animation Guild has a successful history in this department, having helped shows like The Simpsons, Family Guy, American Dad, Rick and Morty, and Solar Opposites, as well as entire studios like Titmouse, form bargaining units of their own. Uh, I just think that this might be a small in the grand scheme of things, but I think it's a significant domino to fall. Um, Yes, it's a group of 66 folks, but this, I think, could have a lasting impact because... Uh, One of the more recent news stories that we talked about, and it seems like every time we have a large comic book movie in particular come out, we have um, complaints about the working conditions for VFX. And so I think this might be a shot across the bow, especially towards Warner Brothers Discovery, who seems to be like taking gladly taking front and center as being the most awful of these studios. But then it's a competition that I mean, like they're all awful. Uh, with the things that they've done. But um, Zaslav in particular seems to be a poster child for this. Uh, and then also like the 
the ripple effects that this could have um, when it comes to, to unionization. And uh, I think it's going to be really fascinating to watch this continue to develop. Oh, yeah, I totally agree. I think this whole strike situation, this whole saga ongoing as it is, um, it is going to be uh, probably one of the more significant moments in the entertainment industry moving forward, particularly in trying you know, to deal with um, the problems of, of artificial intelligence, for one, and how that is implemented. Um, and the question of residuals in particular from streaming, uh, all these uh, stories coming to light now, how, um, you know, streaming is basically uh, preventing uh, talent from getting residuals because the residuals are basically negligible next to nothing compared to when something airs on uh, on, on network television. Um, and considering the big shift towards streaming, um, it's no surprise that a lot of these people are not able to make a living now. So I think this is probably one of the, one of the most significant moments in, in the entertainment world in many years. And it's hopefully uh, there, there'll be positive outcome in, in how specifically those two issues uh, are managed, Chris. Now, speaking of following up on previous stories, Dave, what do you have for us this week? Well, it looks like uh, my predictions are coming true and Microsoft and Activision Blizzard will in fact be able uh, to complete their merger. Um, so the Federal Trade Commission has now decided to back down from its in-house legal challenge to stop Microsoft uh, from acquiring Activision Blizzard. Um, yeah, obviously, they've already uh, tried you know, to step in front of a judge who did not buy their argument that this was anti-competitive. Uh, particularly very protective of Sony for some reason in that whole case, which was weird. Um, they uh, filed a uh, emergency, uh, you know, thing with the appeals court asking for this thing to be halted so they can work through an appeal. Um, and uh, that was denied as well. And so now it looks like instead of going ahead and filing this appeal, which would take uh, a long time to complete, while Microsoft, in fact, can complete this acquisition, uh, they've decided now to back down completely. Um, this is one of the last major hurdles, really, for Microsoft to spend the, the pocket change of $69 billion on Activision Blizzard. Um, the other one, of course, is still go ongoing in the UK, where there is some concern about how this is going to affect um, particularly cloud gaming and the cloud gaming market that uh, basically um, Game Pass would become some kind of monopoly once you start throwing Call of Duty on there. But there's been some signals out of the UK that they're willing to come to the table and try to come up with some remedies um, for, for that particular concern. So that brings us to uh, Microsoft and Activision agreeing on a new deadline. They extended the deadline. Uh, it was actually supposed to be like July 18th or something for this to close. Uh, the new closing date now is October 18th, which should give them um, enough time to satisfy regulators in the UK. So it looks like uh, Microsoft is going to be owning Activision Blizzard here pretty soon. And I would not be surprised if we see a whole bunch of stuff popping up on Game Pass from Activision Blizzard um, after the October 18th deadline. Now, in a related and a very interesting story, um, some older Call of Duty games, particularly Xbox 360 era games, have hit the top 10 in the Xbox sales charts. Apparently, very quietly and without much fanfare, Activision Blizzard and Microsoft actually fixed some matchmaking issues in those games and people got wind of that and have started buying them 
uh, in large numbers because apparently this is the you know considered still the golden age of of Call of Duty games, sort of the Xbox 360 era. Um, and so there's already like some behind the scenes shuffling going around on some of these games. Um, you know, I would not be surprised to see them popping up on Game Pass. However, uh, the fact that you know, a minor fix like some matchmaking uh, can actually you know catapult some of these games back into the top ten sales charts, I think shows that this uh, merger is potentially going to have a major impact on uh, Xbox business moving forward. Chris, I think this is such a prescient. Um news story for today's topic as well but it, it's it's interesting because that you say that about the sales that that last part um has really kind of caught my attention you know we've we've kind of given our takes on this story um you know a couple of times now but but it's really interesting that you say that because um as of the time of recording there's like one of those deep digital sales going on with with the xbox right now i i saw some of those call of duty games um it was as like 80 percent off and so it's kind of interesting to kind of connect the dots there um also anytime this is just a side note anytime that i play like one of those games on game pass i feel like i'm in a time capsule and like simply just the load up screens like when i was playing like the fable games for example and it would have the different kind of um, achievement um, kind of sounders and like logging on with Xbox Live, it looks all different. Um, and, and there's some that even back to the original Xbox. So it's kind of it's kind of interesting to kind of see how Microsoft has kind of capitalized on that backwards compatibility, uh, at least from my perspective. Man, um, I, I it it was almost like a canon event because that was the last Call of Duty. Uh, game that I really played was that first Modern Warfare. I think it came out in like 2007. That was the only one that I really played regularly with friends. Uh, and then we graduated from college and kind of fell out of that. So that was that was a real blast from the past, seeing that rise to um, like the top sales. I mean, so you say what you will about Game Pass and the future of Game Pass and the impact that that kind of thing will have on the industry moving forward. But the one thing that I probably appreciate most about Microsoft and all of this is their uh, their dedication to backwards compatibility. Um, I, I remember there was a report that was released, and this is sort of a you know unrelated news story, but still interesting. There was a report released not too long ago that something like eighty to ninety percent of all games that were released before, I think, like 2010 or something, are completely unavailable to purchase at this point, right? So uh, there, there's so much gaming history out there that people can't even really get a hold of it to replay some of these games. There, there is, I think that is probably one of the, the bigger challenges in the gaming industry right now is just simple gaming preservation. I think there's a reason that the emulation scene online is thriving so much. It's you know, there is just no other way to re-experience some of these things. Even if you look at like, um, you know, Nintendo, for example, you know, when they moved to the Switch, uh, that that entire ecosystem that they had created on on the Wii with all of these older games, it's, it's, that didn't transfer over. Those are not playable anymore in the new hardware. Now you have these subscription services and they're tightly curated. And it's uh, it's it's regrettable, you know, like... I think a lot of companies are leaving money on the table there um, by by having that attitude towards their older games. 
um, I'm just I'm just really pleased, and this has been one of my favorite things, especially as somebody who lapsed out of gaming for a little while, that I'm able to basically on my current Xbox sort of you know experience a lot of those 360 era games that I never had a chance to play. So uh, of all the things that Microsoft does, uh, I would say that their their dedication to to backwards compatibility is probably my my favorite. Yeah, and that's probably something that with our choices that we make in our big talk today will pop up again, uh, undoubtedly. But I, it, it's really interesting, and, and and we've kind of talked about this on the show before. But like that five or five year stretch for me personally, where I took off from gaming, you know, being a new parent and everything, like being able to discover games like Fable again um, seamlessly has been a real treat. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Alrighty, folks, there you have it. That's it from Nerd News. Stick around after a quick break. We're going to be back and we are going to have us a big talk about video game consoles and our favorite game of each. Uh, which three consoles and which three games would we take with us on a deserted island? So stick around. Alrighty, folks, we're back. And this week we're going to have a very special... It's been a while since we really just dug in and talked about games and gaming. And so this is our episode to kind of revisit that topic a little bit. Uh, and Chris came up with a really good idea of sort of the, the desert island syndrome, you know, which which three video game consoles and which one game for each would you take with you on a deserted island to keep you entertained? Uh, part of this obviously springs from uh, the current Hollywood strikes. It's... Um, uh, bad form, I would say, during all the striking to go ahead and sit around and do movie and TV reviews. And so we are pivoting a little bit more towards gaming and comics for the time being. And uh, we hope that you're going to enjoy that pivot. Uh, so that being said, let's go ahead and jump right in. Chris, uh, what is your first console and first game for that console that you would like to take with you? And most importantly, why? Explain yourself. <laughs> well, um, I'm going to color outside the lines here. I guess this is still technically nerdy, but like I'm going to let the the sports nerd show. Um, One of my most beloved um, consoles that I've ever had is the Sega Dreamcast. Like that was such a revelation to me. And yes, that's due in large part to the fact that my dad figured out how to play burn games on the Sega Dreamcast. So I had literally every game imaginable for the Dreamcast. Um, but the one that really called to me, like that, I, I desperately miss this franchise and it's NFL 2K, not NBA 2K. I'm saying NFL 2K. So if you're under 30, this is just like probably blowing your mind right now. But yes, before Madden and company got exclusive rights to the NFL PA, there were multiple pro football games and NFL 2K was my preference. Um, it was a very fluid um, kind of playing style. Um, they really hunkered in on making you utilize the joysticks. You know, rather than thumbing through a play selection menu, you had to hold the joystick in a direction to select a play. Um, you could charge up your defensive end. It was always fun to rush the passer, particularly uh, Dave's eyes. This is not a video medium, but Dave's eyes are probably, you know, glossing over but um 
uh, we're talking American football <laughs> on today's show. But no, I, I absolutely love this game. I remember distinctly um, getting this game uh, for the Dreamcast and not being able to play until I finished my 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 lunch. And it was Thanksgiving leftovers. And I had to eat a large helping of stuffing. And I absolutely abhor stuffing. So I was like, I'm no shame. Like, you know how men get on podcasts nowadays and reveal their emotions and get real. This is that day. I was sitting there like crying at 12 years old because I had to eat this stuffing before I could go play NFL 2K. Uh, So we're trauma bonding today, folks. Um, But no, I absolutely loved that franchise and what they were what they were doing. Uh, I even looked up some old YouTube footage to kind of like reminisce in preparation for the episode. I love the 2k franchise. And then it's now that, you know, I have the hindsight of, you know, how things in industries work. You have shortly thereafter, I think NFL 2k five. So they only had like this five year window before Madden got the exclusive rights. Um, And Madden, you know, did its thing for those first couple of years but when you don't have any competition madden has just been kind of like a stagnant rollout they haven't really been forced to breed any kind of innovation because they've had no competition so um you know that's been a long time complaint of madden players is there's we we don't have the training camp mini games and simulations anymore and um so I really, I really miss some NFL 2K, and there's just something about that Dreamcast. The way I can, I can close my eyes and feel that controller in my hands with like, like the 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 dual trigger system, and that was like a really precursor to Xbox and and having those dual triggers. Um, uh, and then, oh, you you always remember having to slide that memory uh, memory card in there. You had that with the PlayStation as well. But uh, I I really loved my Dreamcast. Like that was like peak childhood video gaming for me uh and nfl 2k if i had to pick one game for that console it's definitely of course growing up in minnesota like randy moss on the cover like you can't beat that all right sorry dave is that too much american sports (laughs) i i don't mean i don't mean any disrespect you know that uh i i appreciate athleticism so much as the next guy but i am you know, I am a German, and and you know, it's, you guys should football see is something you, should, you play. Okay. Football is something you, guys, you play with your feet. Okay, you guys, <laughs> you guys should see him at like the school events where we have to go to like a basketball game or like a sporting event that's not the other football. He is he has laptop out. He is like so unsubscribed. <laughs> Absolutely, I am. I am not engaged, and I don't mean that unkind. Like I said, I, I appreciate athleticism in all its forms, but um, American football, in particular, is is probably the sport I connect with the least. Um, however, um, I have a deep appreciation for the Dreamcast and all it tried to do at the time. It was really um, ahead of its time in a lot of ways and, and quite revolutionary. Um, so. Uh, I, I have deep appreciation for that. I have no context for any of the NFL 2K games. As a huge soccer fan, I, I hardly even play the FIFA games. You know, like if you want to know, you know, like sporting games where I'm at, uh, you know, I'm, I'm way, way back. I'm talking like um, 
you know, uh, international superstar soccer on the Super Nintendo is like the last <laughs> major sporting game I really got into. So it's um, good on you that you enjoy that. It's, it's you didn't not have, me, but you it's didn't big... have the uh, the FIFA '97 with the uh, the pixelated David Beckham, was it? No, no. Actually, I actually preferred uh, international superstar soccer, which I think uh, is the series that eventually evolved into Pro Evolution Soccer. Actually. Um, but uh, International Superstar Soccer Deluxe, I think, was the version that I had for the for the SNES, and I, I played the crap out of that. That was a fun game. Um, but sporting games, I'm I'm not big into simulation, which is I think what everything uh, currently seems to be tending towards. I'm more into like arcadey uh, gameplay, something that's a little more you know unrealistic and fun. Like if you put, for example, the Forza games next to each other, I don't play Forza Motorsport. I play Forza Horizon. It's the more arcadey you know experience. Um, and so that's, I think, also why I got out of professional wrestling games in a lot of ways is because I really like the over-the-top arcadey nature of like those those old THQ games, you know. Um, oh like, man, uh, see or WrestleMania Yokozuna, Yokozuna and Doink owned that game. Ugh. Yeah, but as soon as you got into like the more modern, like simulation-based, um, trying to make it like really realistic and grounded, I kind of just like. You know, that's interesting. So that's interesting because I'm kind of the other way on that. But it's interesting to hear you say that. Yeah, I just like really arcadey, over the top. You know, there was actually a wrestling game came out came out a few years ago. I think it was on PlayStation Three. It was called like WWE All Stars or something, and it went back to that like arcadey style. It wasn't a big seller, but I enjoyed it a lot more than any of the more recent games I've tried to play. So, all right, so Dave, like me looking at your gaming experience in a lot of ways is like the kid with his uh, face pressed against the plate glass window. Like, I wish I had that. Like, so, so <laughs> give me your first pick. So um, th- it's no secret that I have mad love for the uh, legend of Zelda franchise. Um, you know, that it's, it's kind of difficult to quantify, I guess, that gaming style. I think I hear it most commonly referred to as an action adventure game. It's not quite a role-playing game, although some of them have a little bit of that element there. Um, so let's, let's go with action adventure. I think that's probably, a, a as good a term for a Zelda style game as any, um, the story of my gaming, uh, evolution really starts with the Atari 2600 that my father owned. Um, and I played some games on there, but I did not really become obsessed or super, super interested in gaming until later when I, uh, you know, was given a choice, uh, one year for Christmas of which system I would like to get. I could have either a Nintendo entertainment system, uh, which was the big seller at the time, or I could have this newfangled thing, which everybody was talking about, which was a portable gaming system, the Game Boy. And since I was always a goer, you know, I go places a lot. Um, I spend a lot of time at my grandparents' house and, you know, my parents and, and I would travel places, would drive places a lot. I figured the portable system would probably ultimately be more beneficial to me. And so instead of getting a SNES uh, at the beginning, I started my gaming journey with the Nintendo Game Boy. And to this day, I have mad love for that system. And I've talked about this way, way long time ago when we first started this podcast, how much I love the Nintendo Game Boy. And so my first Zelda-style game, uh, believe it or not, was actually not a Zelda game. Uh, My first Zelda-style sort of action-adventure game was actually a game that was uh, in the United States called Final Fantasy Adventure. Um, But it was not a Final Fantasy game. It was just branded as such. 
uh, in order to try to sell some more uh, units since Final Fantasy was a decent seller on the Nintendo Entertainment System. Um, it was actually had a better name, I think, uh, in uh, Europe. It was referred to there as Mystic Quest, which I thought, you know, and still think is kind of a really cool uh, video game name um, and was not connected to the Final Fantasy series over there. Um, but it is actually the first game in the Seiken Densetsu series, which uh, it became very famous with the second game, Secret of Mana, on the Super Nintendo Entertainment System. So this is the precursor of Secret of Mana. Um, it's very much in sort of the, the Zelda vein, uh, you know, top-down, 2D, obviously. Um, uh, very much, you know, epic quest, sword play. But it also layered on a little bit more RPG elements than Zelda necessarily has. A lot more variety in in weapons and, you know, discarding older weapons and upgrading to stronger weapons. Uh, there was an experience system, a base, very basic sort of leveling up. You know, you go ahead and you, you kill a bunch of creatures and you get experience points. And every time you hit a certain threshold of experience points, uh, la, 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 uh, you get to uh, upgrade one of four stats. I think it's like strength, stamina, wisdom, and, and health or something like that. Um, and so this game... Uh, became sort of my first Zelda-style obsession, I guess. I played Final Fantasy Adventure so much, trying to explore every nook and cranny of that game. And, you know, obviously by modern standards, it almost seems, uh, you know, primitive. But it was a whole expansive world to me as a kid. Uh, and I became super fascinated by this by this game and the series. And so when I eventually did make the jump to the NES, I was primed to play... Uh, the Legend of Zelda, which has a lot less story the first Legend of Zelda does than than Final Fantasy Adventure. And so I kind of was very blasé about the first Zelda by the time I got to it. Um, but I then rediscovered the Zelda series on the on the SNES with A Link to the Past, um, which is, you know, kind of a cousin of this kind of game, I think. You know, they emphasized the story a little bit more, dug a little deeper. Um but that love, that enduring love of The Legend of Zelda and action-adventure gaming started on the Game Boy on the go with Final Fantasy Adventure. So the Game Boy and Final Fantasy Adventure are, you know, my peanut butter and jelly. Those two things just go together for me. Yeah, so now, like, just to break down that jealousy of that console, I, I didn't have a Game Boy until I got the Game Boy Color, and it was... The, the only game I ever remember having for it was Pokemon Pinball. <laughs> and this was like at the, the height of Pokemon Zeitgeist, like the movie had already come out. And like I was watching friends play like red and blue and like collecting their Pokemon. And I was just stuck playing pinball. And I, I, I don't recall like maybe I just like placed my focus in... um. In, in playing console games because that was the only game I had for it. Uh, I do remember on like one like like youth group trip, like one of my friends had like Pokemon Red or Blue, and I was just like, let me just borrow this for the entire three hour car ride back. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so like I, I guess the Game Boy was like one of my my biggest what ifs, and then of course. You know, I, I put all that focus and energy into console games. And then lo and behold, my two youngest sisters got caught up in uh, the the Nintendo DS. So they had like all those games like strewn across their rooms and everything. And I was just like, well, I guess I missed the boat 
on a Game Boy. So um, I've, I've also never, and I know this isn't technically a Final Fantasy game, but like that whole genre is like, I am completely shrouded in mist. Like I don't know anything about it. And that's interesting too, because uh, the Final Fantasy series didn't click with me until much later either. You know, I was one a, uh, I guess you could say Nintendo stalwart for most of my life. So when the choice came between, you know, um, the uh, N64 and the PlayStation, I got the N64 and then the whole Final Fantasy series was made to jump over to Sony. And right when it hit like peak popularity in the West, I was not playing any of those games because I was playing on my N64, which, you know, is a, is a great console, but is also bereft of RPGs in, in a pretty much every way, shape and form. So, uh, you know, turn-based RPGs in particular, I think, evaded me for a long time actually until i got the playstation 2 um and then i played final fantasy 10 and that kind of inspired me to go back and play some of the older ones um and i I have a you know mad love for the final fantasy series just really sad that you know more recent entries have got moved sort of towards this like more action adventure style combat because i really have a love for that old school turn-based um gameplay so that that's something that I'm missing a little bit from those Final Fantasy games these days. Anywho, Chris, that brings us to your second console that you would take on a deserted island, and which game you would take with you. Yeah, so like I, I, I've professed my love for this game in particular, so um, previously, but I love the Nintendo GameCube, and it was just like like an odd. I think we got it at a pawn shop. Like we didn't even like buy it new or anything. It was just like kind of like a secondary unit. Like we had it simultaneously as the original Xbox, my original Xbox, and we kind of played it in a different room on a different TV. But I freaking got my hands on X Men Legends uh, one and two, um, <laughs> uh, particularly two because X Men Legends was great, was fun. It was just like when the X movies were coming out and. I really did not like the X movies even at that time. But like those games were like rekindling like my love for these characters that I had in the, the animated series. And it was like, it was almost like it awakened uh, something dormant in me, in my fandom, uh, these games and particularly the second one, because of the simple notion is I got to play with Magneto. And so like the X-Men and the brotherhood of mutants, like, join forces against apocalypse and the simple notion of I get to play a video game with Magneto. Like it's, it's, it's over hook line and sinker. So I I think that just like narratively, like the Easter eggs and like the attention to detail of like X-Men lore that's present in these games without being overwhelming, it's still newcomer friendly. It's still, like laying out these characters and these storylines that longtime fans are familiar with, but newcomers can, um, you know, embrace at the same time. Um, I still have like the Stepford Cuckoos saying, you're not a believer in apocalypse. Like it's, it's the voice acting is, is top notch. I, I absolutely love these games and like something we were talking about before, something that Xbox does well. Um, but I wish they would lean into more is remastering these old games and re-releasing them. I swear by all the gods and all the pantheons, if they re-release this, which 
was never released on Xbox, I don't think. So maybe they don't have like the rights to do that, but I know that they have um, the ability to do so with its spiritual successor. Yes, I'm surprised it didn't make my list too, but I didn't want to like have too many similarities. I'm talking Marvel Ultimate Alliance, particularly the first one. The second one, they did Civil War. It was okay. But that first one, that first Marvel Ultimate Alliance, for the time that it was in, um, and the 360 almost made my list too because it's the first console that I bought myself. So there, I know that it's not as popular as others, uh, that generation in particular, but that was that was the first one that I bought myself. And Marvel Ultimate Alliance, I remember like scraping the last couple of dimes that I had on my paycheck to buy that game and just basking in the glory of it. So uh, technically this is for X-Men Legends 2 Rise of Apocalypse, but anytime that anybody wants to remaster any of those of, of those games, whether it's X-Men Legends or Marvel Ultimate Alliance, like it's 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 truly mind-boggling that with the popularity of the MCU that we can't have better Marvel video games that are not the Spider-Man exclusive to Sony ones. Uh, Marvel Avengers was a huge turd. Like there were elements of it that I enjoyed, but the fact that Marvel cannot capitalize on video gaming better than we have the Spider-Man game is just mind blowing to me. Like there are so many people out here desperate for a Marvel video game Uh, and, or even go back to the oldies then make it happen. Now, see, the GameCube almost made my list as well, because there's a lot of stuff on there that I adored. Uh, The little purple lunchbox there made me happy in many ways. Once again, (laughs) I bet on the wrong horse. Right, I kept kept sticking with Nintendo, even when things got a little weird. Um, But I loved my GameCube. Um, I remember the, the game that I probably played most on there, believe it or not, was Resident Evil 4. That was originally supposed to be like a GameCube exclusive. Now it runs on your toaster. Um... But uh, I remember when Resident Evil 4 first came out, and that completely like blew my mind. Uh, so the, the GameCube is, holds a special place in my heart, too. Strangely enough, I never played either one of the X-Men Legends games. Uh, even as a huge comic book fan, uh, the X-Men continue to be a blind spot, I guess. Um, but I would be interested in, in, in revisiting that. I still have a GameCube downstairs in my basement, and I would not mind dusting it off and giving this one a shot. It sounds like fun. Um. Also, special shout out to uh, Game Choice 1A, and that's Super Smash Brothers Melee. Like, the Smash Brothers games, always a great, like, party game. Like, if you have, like, that's something that I know that you and I both miss, is, like, couch co-op or games that you play with a group of people there with you. Like, that, that, that one was always special to me. And here's a weird one. There was this Disney, like, skateboarding game. I don't even remember what it's called. I'm going to have to Google it right now. And, like, it was a Disney Extreme Skate Adventure. Just had to Google it. And, like, just the simple notion of playing is, like, Buzz Lightyear going through those Hot Wheels tracks in Andy's bedroom. Like, that was a a ridiculously fun game that had no business being that fun. Is Tony Hawk's Pro Skater with the Disney filter on it. It was was great. Yeah, some games work really well with the Disney filter and others don't. Um, I just tried to play... a game that's supposed to be like Animal Crossing with a Disney filter, and after 15 minutes, I was so annoyed I turned it off. Uh, so that's because you tried to play. They don't. 
That's because Animal Crossing is trash. That was the biggest waste of $50. I am so... Like, I just I just sit here and, like, hack trees or, like, pick at stones. That's just what I do. And I'm forever an infant. Like, I can't grow facial hair. No thanks, Animal Crossing. I'm so mad I spent money on that. Well, you know, those kinds of simulation games are ultimately, you know, not for everybody. Um, but I, I, I like some of them. I, I particularly like, like, the old throwback um, to, like, the SNES days. Um, the Stardew Valley in particular, I think is something really special when it comes to those kinds of management sims, I guess. Um, but I thought something like that with like a bunch of Disney characters would be fun. And it's just the absolute most annoying possible <laughs> setup that they could have come up with for that thing. Uh, it just did not work for me at all. Uh, it's 15, 20 minutes or so. And I was like, nope, um, game pass. You have steered me wrong this time. So there's that, I guess. Yeah, all right, so let's take it back to my first ever console, which is your second pick. Yeah, so uh, obviously uh, it is impossible for me to talk about uh, any kind of gaming consoles without talking about the Super Nintendo. Um, I did finally, uh, after a couple of years of just gaming almost almost exclusively on my Game Boy, get an NES and played some of the highlights on there. You know, your Zelda, your your Super Mario Brothers 1, 2, and 3. Um and and then you know very quickly suddenly boom you know the announcement came that the the SNES is coming and and I was primed for this you know like uh, I had my trusty Game Boy at my side but I was primed for uh, something that was a little newer on the TV and got a SNES and oh boy <laughs> this was the system I mean I I don't even know how to describe this to to you know gamers that weren't around at the time but this was just this was just the greatest system um, the library was huge hit after hit. The hits kept coming. You could you could spend every bit of pocket change you had on on games, and you still would never play every good game that existed on the on the Super Nintendo. Were there turds? Well, yeah, absolutely. But the 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 hit to turd ratio on this system was so skewed towards hit. It's absolutely unbelievable how many good games were on the system. And and so then the question becomes: Well, you know, out of all those hits, which game would you take on a des deserted island? And what it comes down to is simply this: none of the hits. Um, as as always, I'm an outlier. <laughs> I can't help myself. There was a game on the SNES that I had a uh, unusual amount of love for, even in my own friend circle. So uh, I talked a little bit about Final Fantasy Adventure and how it was the, the first in the Seiken Densetsu series and then Secret of Mana came out on the SNES and it was a great game as well, action adventure. Um, and then we had the uh, US branch of the company, Square, uh, decide to uh, make one like this themselves. Um, and it was not very well received because, well, here's the thing. Uh, there was a Secret of Mana 2, quote-unquote, second and Setsu 3 that was released in Japan. It's a really big game uh, and would need massive translation work. And it came out kind of towards the tail end of the SNES's life cycle. So when Secret of Evermore was uh, announced, the sense was that this was the game we were getting in, in the West instead of uh, Secret of Mana 2. And a lot of Gamers were really mad about that and, and categorically refused to play Secret of Evermore. And because of that, it never became really a big hit. However, um, I played this at a friend's house and immediately fell in love with it with it, and had my parents run out and get it as soon as I was, you know, eligible for some cash. 
And I, I love this game, man. It, it takes the gameplay of A Secret of Mana, but it layers a very different sensibility over it. Uh, and it's a sensibility that I think you, Chris, would appreciate considering our share, shared love of Mystery Science Theater 3000. And that is that it layers a B-movie sensibility over the whole thing. So the game is basically there's a kid and his dog in the real world, and they get sucked into a parallel world. And uh, the, the boy is a uh, aficionado of B-movies and runs through this alternate world extensively quoting imaginary B-movies the whole time. It has just a really wacky sense of humor to it. Uh, the world, which is called Evermore, is divided into different time periods. So you start in like a prehistoric time period, then you end up in sort of like a Greco-Roman toga time period, uh, you end up in sort of a Renaissance time period, and ultimately you end up on a space station in a futuristic time period. So you have these different zones. And at the beginning, you you kind of are traveling through those linearly, um, and then ultimately uh, the world sort of opens up to you and you can jump from zone to zone to go on various missions and stuff and collect different collectibles and the like. Uh, gameplay is very action-adventure, has sort of that uh, that Zelda-style, Secret of Evermore style. There's some uh, RPG elements in there. There's also a really cool alchemy system in this game that I never got tired of, and that is that throughout the world you can collect various ingredients, um, water, roots, limestone, etc., etc., and you learn different... Uh, recipes of combining these different things for effects. One of my favorites, I think, used like water and limestone, and you could make like a giant stone fist that comes flying through the sky and smashes your enemies. Um, you could create fireballs and, and all sorts of different, what would be like a magic system uh, in most other games of this type. Here it uses sort of a quote-unquote scientific approach, and you have these different recipes uh, of mixing the ingredients together. Um, and then, of course, those those quote-unquote spells, they they level up too. Um, your weapons can level up. You get different levels from different, you know, zones. Uh, I particularly like the lightsaber. They call it a laser sword, I think, but it's basically a lightsaber that you get on the space station. That's pretty fun. Um, there's just a lot of fun to be had. Your dog is really cool in this. You use your dog to sniff out uh, ingredients out in the world. Uh, he also fights alongside you, and he transforms every time that you change to a different zone in the game. So you have like this huge prehistoric beast dog when you're in the prehistoric zone. But by the time you hit the Renaissance era, he's a pink poodle. So <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of fun to be had with that too. And of course, on the space station, he becomes a toaster dog, um, inspired by Canine from Doctor Who, I would believe. So uh, the game is a lot of fun, has a great sense of humor, has great gameplay uh, inspired by other games. Um, and for just... It, it hit the sweet spot for me, and I never got tired of it. So Secret of Evermore comes with me. This is such a Dave game. Like, I just, I've never heard of it before. <laughs> and just Googling the cover, there's an ugly-looking bug. And I'm like, yeah, this is, this is, this is you. This is so you. Um, oh, you, you have no idea. You, you, you play that game for like 15 minutes, and you're like, holy crap, they made this just for him. Like it's it's so up my personality. It's unbelievable. And a and like a quick image search, there's a, a, a scene that says this fine statuette will set you back just five jars of spice or two chickens. I'm like, yeah, that sounds like something you would play. 
Oh my god, the marketplace. There's a whole trading sequence where you have to go through this marketplace that's like inspired by ancient Greece and you have to trade all these different items to get some choice like armor and stuff. And it is it is absolutely hilarious. There, there's like a guy who's predicting the future and if you talk to him often enough, he decides to tell you that we're all in a video game and there's an unseen master controlling you. And if he's lying, then like the gods should strike him with lightning and then he gets hit by lightning and turns into a goat. It's just like, th- this game is full of just absolute adorable weirdness. I love it so. All right, Chris, that brings us to uh, your final console and game. What do you got? Well, listen, this was a game changer, pun fully intended. Um, <clears throat> I think I've detailed this on, on the show before, but when I moved to our area, like the summer before freshman year, I had that stereotypical like teenage angst of, you know, I hate my parents because I moved away from my family and friends and no one's going to want to befriend me and I'm just going to lock myself in my room. And then um, I don't know if this aided or hindered that, but shortly after moving here, we got the original Xbox and uh, I was I was rarely ever seen from again. Uh and and continuing with the Dreamcast, my dad um, he had to open this one up. Like with the with the Dreamcast, he could just burn the the game disc. But this one, we had to like mod it and solder like a chip. And he he like recruited me to do that. But Dave, you remember like those old like leather bound like CD cases? that we used to have back in the day. Yes, sir. <clears throat> I have oh, like yes. a hundred and twenty one <clears throat> just filled with every Xbox game. Um and there's just something so deeply soul searching and nostalgic of just the load up screen of the original Xbox. It's that and it's so weird. It it shouldn't be cool, but it is. It's just just like Ding, ding, ding. Like the load up screen had me from the word go. Like, and like the fact that like they committed to the black and green color scheme throughout, like that was just super cool to me. <clears throat> and then, so, I mean, like there was no shortage of games that I loved. Uh, I mean, like you name it, I played it on the Xbox. Um, but if I had to pick one and, and it was a toss up between one and two, but Halo 2, man. That was a that was that that changed the entire world for me and my friend group. Um it's probably <clears throat> for me like the most anticipated sequel to a video game. Like this this was almost like Harry Potter craze, like waiting for the stores to open up, pre-orders were nuts. Um and like will it live up to the hype because, you know, the yeah, you play the campaign, but the real the real calling card for Halo is is multiplayer. You couch, not co-op, but like in-person, local. There we go. Local multiplayer. <clears throat> and just getting together with so many different friends. I can't tell you the amount of nights that I went completely sleepless at friends' houses where we had multiple televisions multiple xbox people were bringing their xbox consoles under their arms 
<laughs> to hook up to a different TV in different rooms, and we are having like sixteen people go, like local multiplayer, and like that's just something that we don't have nowadays. Um, you add to the fact anytime I have character customization, it's game on. Like down to like also one of the best like voice acting jobs in all of video gaming is like that announcer dude like sometimes it'll make you mad because you're like the victim of it but like <clears throat> like slayer running riot like and you're like the victim of that so that could like really just really irritate you um double kill like that dude that dude was bringing it okay when he what when he stepped into the studio to record those lines that dude brought it so shouts to whoever that dude is. And then, you know, like <clears throat> there's so much, they tried to make a freaking Paramount plus show based on this. Like I, it is what it is. It was, it was all right. I mean, it was obviously it was not successful, but there's just so much about, and I'm, I, and I know it seems disingenuous. Like I'm, I'm, I'm not like a multiplayer person, but I think that added aspect of, of socializing of, you know, being there in person with your friends, that communal effect. My last day of high school, we met at Pizza Hut for the buffet, and then we immediately went and played Halo 2. Like, it, it, and it's just, I guess they have, the, I guess, I don't, I don't want to sound like a grumpy old man, but like, you do that online, but like, there's something I miss about that communal factor. And of like, yesteryear and like, childhood lost, innocence lost, or whatever, of, of missing that. And like, the, just the simple look of the needler, the gun, the needler, that was always my weapon of choice. I never was good enough to get the sword. But when you like, and it is a tricky game for those of you that don't know. If you have the sword, like you can one shot or one swipe, kill somebody, but you're also open uh, to getting shot. You're, you're more, your defenses are done with the sword. So I'm just over there happy with my needler and there's just something so soothing about unloading a needler into someone and waiting for it, waiting for it, waiting for it. And then it explodes. And that delayed reaction was so fun. Also sticking someone with a plaza grenade prop, like accurately sticking someone with a grenade was also oddly satisfying. But yeah, halo two was one of those ones where I really kind of came out of my shell and I, I was there for it. And here comes my moment of great shame again in that I never actually owned an original Xbox um, and have not really played Halo except for maybe like 10 minutes. Um, <laughs> again, it's that uh, that generation I, I kind of bet on the GameCube uh, because I was sort of a, let's, let's say, Nintendo loyalist, I guess. Um, but uh, I, you know, lapsed from gaming then for a little while. And when I when I returned to gaming, it was via the Xbox 360. And I did eventually, uh, you know, jump into a little bit um, of Halo in the Master Chief collection. But I've never actually made the decision to sit down and, like, really lean into it. Um, so maybe, maybe it's it's time that I try to go back to that and just, like, discover it a little bit. Yeah, I really... I remember, I think I may have even nerd commended it, but playing that Halo Infinite, the most recent drop that was on Game Pass, that was that was even fun. I had never really played the solo campaign 
Um, oddly enough, because I'm such a solo campaign gamer, but I, I remember very much enjoying that. And then just, you know, as I've complained about before, having to make space on my internal hard drive on the Series S. So that had to be a casualty. So I may have to tap into that one again, but um, I'm just I'm just a big fan of of the franchise and the I guess the nostalgia it brings and it and it and it, it hits me every time. <clears throat> All right, it's not a complete uh, Dave uh, video game list without something Zelda on it. Yeah, you know this has been very much the action adventure uh, list that I have made here, and that makes absolute sense for me since it is my favorite genre, and I keep returning to it. Uh, some of them have more RPG elements than others, but ultimately, if you give me a quest and a sword, I'm a happy I'm a happy boy. What can I say? Um, the N64, uh, as I've mentioned previously, was a very important console in my life. It was the last one that I got in Germany, believe it or not, man. Um, you know, after that, my GameCube was an American console, so uh, this this was uh, my last console before I moved here. Um, the thing about the N64 is that uh, it gave me two things that completely changed my outlook on gaming. The first of those was Super Mario 64, um, which I think holds up incredibly well, all things considered. Maybe not the camera, but there are ways around that these days, uh, you know, with a really good... Uh, hack and pc port but uh that's neither here nor there uh super mario 64 revolutionized platforming games for me uh and uh ocarina of time completely revolutionized action adventure games for me and so uh, it would have been very easy for me to sit here and say that ocarina of time is the game that i would take with me uh for the uh, n64 but it's not uh it actually is the totally bonkers out there and weird sequel uh, Majora's Mask. Majora's Mask is is such a, a a special game. At the time, it was really divisive when it came out. You know, people said it was too dark, it was too weird. It has a, a three day system where basically you have three days to do what you need to do, and then in three days the world ends. But you have time travel ability, so you can go back to the beginning of the three day cycle, and you can speed up and slow down slow down time as you need um, in order to, you know, give yourself more time to do what you need to do or to skip a little bit ahead um, so you can uh, get to a particular event. Um, and you're basically going through these three days, Groundhog's Day style, repeatedly uh, in order to get all the, uh, you know, items and, and power that you need in order to take on the ultimate villain and stop the moon uh, from crashing into the world and destroying it. Um, and on top of that, the moon has a really sinister face while it's crashing down slowly towards the, the earth. So, uh, dude, um, it was really messed up. But at the same time, uh, it, it, it's so expansive. Uh, you know, a lot of people complained, well, you know, the, the, last, the last Zelda game had something like seven eight dungeons or something this one only has four yeah but man this was like side quest heaven right they actually went through the effort of of programming uh for a whole slew of characters everything that they do in a particular three-day period and they just keep going through that cycle as you go back to day one you could follow a character around basically, for the entire three days and just see what they do on each day. And because it's so meticulously programmed what every single character is doing every single minute of every day, pretty much, 
you have all these trigger events and all these interactions that you can get involved with. And there's so many quest lines in here that stretch sometimes through one day, sometimes through two, sometimes through all three, as you're slowly trying to help all of these people. Um, you know, it, it's really, really cool. Like if you like side quests in a video game, th this is side quest heaven. So the, the weird tone um, is, is fantastic. Uh, all of the assets are reused from the uh, from Ocarina of Time because I think they had like one year to make the sequel or something. Um, so they, they got inventive. Uh, so if you like the look of Ocarina of Time, you're going to like the look of this one. Uh, the gameplay style is very similar. They introduce a really cool mechanic where you uh, have different masks that turn you into different creatures. So you can, you know, wear a Goron mask and become a Goron, or you can you can wear a Zora mask and become a Zora and swim and stuff. It's really really cool stuff here. Um, so it, it's weird. It's probably it's probably in the top two or three weirdest Zelda games uh, that I've ever played, and it's very dark and 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 odd. But at the same time, it is such a good time to play. So if, if I had to stick to a particular game on the N64, it would have to be Majora's Mask. <clears throat> yeah, and I've detailed this before, but like um, the N64 is another one of those consoles where I'm like, man, I wish I had had that. Like I never had an N64. I did play my cousins when I visited them in Illinois uh, a good bit. Um, and then Zelda is probably like my greatest what if um, being as you know, Breath of the Wild is the only game that I've really played. Um, I played the the one that was on Switch Online. Um, I think that was from the Super Nintendo one, Link to the Past. No, I t I've played I've played Link's Awakening, and those are, I mean, obviously very very different games. Um, but which Link's Awakening did you play? Did you play the original Game Boy version, or did you play the recent remake? The recent remake. The recent remake is very close to the Game Boy original. You know, that was another really weird, weird outlier of a Zelda game. Yeah, so and I and I've enjoy, I've enjoyed those. It's just um, you know, maybe I can buckle down and get a Switch again. Um my 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 Switch stopped working, so I had to get rid of it. Um but I'm 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 definitely like intrigued to tap into this this mythos, like the entire universe is fascinating to me and I need I mean, I need to play Tears of the Kingdom too. So um, I'm, I'm very interested in, in revisiting all of these. Now, I will say I'm, I'm a weird little purist when it comes to my Zelda games, right? So when it comes to like Ocarina of Time, I think the remake that they made for the, for the 3DS was actually quite good. But the Majora's Mask remake on the 3DS, I did not enjoy. They did some, some tweaks to the mechanics uh, particularly how some of the um, some of the alternate forms of Link when he was wearing the masks, how they control. And I think it actually makes the gameplay worse. So when it comes to Majora's Mask, uh, N64 original or bust is, is really my attitude towards that. I mean, it looks very pretty on the 3DS. They read the graphics and everything, but just the way they, they change the gameplay... Um, on the Deku Scrub version of Link and on the Zora version of Link in particular, I think those were not good choices. And there's one major boss fight that they modified in a really weird way too um, that I didn't think was was all that either. So um, when it comes to Majora's Mask, I would stick with the original, not the remake. 
Alrighty, folks, there you have it. Those were our uh, video games that we would take with us uh, to a deserted island console and one game each. Uh, if you were restricted just to two or three consoles and one game on each, which ones would you take with you? Uh, we'd love to hear your opinion on the socials. You can find us on pretty much all social media platforms at NerdbyWord and on several, including Instagram and Twitter. You can find us at ThatNerdChris and at ThatNerdDave. But don't direct message us on Twitter because you will be limited on how many direct messages you can send soon uh, unless you are a Twitter Blue subscriber. So uh, keep that in mind. Don't exceed your quota. Um, stick around because after a quick break, we'll be back with some nerd commendations. Ladies and gentlemen, it's, it's time for our favorite segment. We got some nerdy content that we love and we want to recommend to you. So it's time for... Chris, I read this one so we can actually talk about it. I have an opinion. Yes. Um, you read this because I probably bullied you into it after I read it. But nonetheless... Um, the, the long reaching effects of nerd nightmare are sinking their teeth into my reading habits, pun fully intended. No, also based on how much I just adored Midnight Suns, the video game, and particularly this character, um, I could not wait to read Blade number one. I, this is my first ever Blade comic, period. Um, and... I remember really liking the first Wesley Snipes film. Um, I remember that opening scene was iconic and just incredible, which is which is funny because this opening scene of this comic kind of feels like almost like to re a return to that um, on on some on some sort of smaller scale. Um, I never did watch the second and third one. I don't think, um, but. Uh, Brian Edward Hill, uh, Elena Casagrande, Jordi Belair on colors. I mean, I mean, come on, that's Jordi Belair's colors like always, always pop. Um, and then Elena Casagrande is is new to me on art, but my God, was this captivating? I mean, and this is no disrespect to to Brian Hill, like the art is absolutely riveting here. Like you open it up, and it's almost like this. 80s kind of like vice city type of vibe and then you inject vampires and blade shows up it's just like a really fun like action movie like it's almost cinematic and it's in in the the quality of the art and the storyline like i can see this playing out on screen um and then you have like a murder mystery kind of element um it's just a really really fascinating story and the the art in particular is just captivating um there's a there's a switch at the end that it, it just blows you away like i i i was absolutely spellbound after this issue um and i can't wait read to to read more of this and it's like some of the stuff that i've e even in my recent like acclamation to the horror genre um, especially horror comics. I, I don't really have an experience with horror comics, but like seeing some of that, these elements seem seemingly, I don't know, maybe I'm a noob in this, but like 
it really sold me and i cannot wait for more of this yeah i was, I, was, I found this actually quite interesting i think the most interesting thing about it was that on the cover it said like that is legacy number 27 like are you telling me there's only ever been 26 blade comic books the crap's going on there like how is that even possible he had like a, a wildly successful trilogy of movies but we've only ever had 26 blade comic books before this that kind of blows my mind dude um but yeah, I, I thought this was a really uh, interesting start to a story here. Uh, you know, the, the whole that he was set up, you know, the the, the tr how they tricked him. And then his very blasé, like at the end, I love that line at the end. It was like, yeah, okay, let's save the world, whatever. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like uh, he's, 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 he's very neat in this, in that he is, um, you know, it, it's very easy, particularly when you look at like the Wesley Snipes movies, he becomes sort of like a power fantasy, very, you know, like hyper competent. You know what I mean? The more the movies get go, go along, the more he's like unbeatable, undefeatable. Um, so seeing a first issue with Blade where he's like, you know, basically got his butt handed to him, and then he has to like come back from that over the course of the series, I think it's going to be is a really good way to go about with a character like this. Um, I like the coloring and the art a lot on this too. I think it's a really good start. Uh, Blade has never been like my all-time favorite character or something, but I think this issue sold me uh, for sure on this series, and I'm very interested to see where it's going. All right. Speaking of number ones, Dave, what do you have for us this week? Yeah, we got a new we got a new Hawk Girl uh, number one. Um, I'm actually a big Hawk Girl fan. Uh, Kendra Saunders was a very big part of some of my favorite Justice Society of America issues. Um, so uh, I really, really like this character, and uh, you know, seeing her get a mini is actually really exciting to me. Um, do I recommend the issue? Absolutely, I do. Now there are there are some interesting things going on in the book that uh, you know kind of make me take a double take a little bit, um, but I'm willing to kick back and see where it's going because I'm so excited to see her, you know, have her own series again because she's just such a neat character. Uh, so the story here is that you know in in the dawn of DC era here that we're in that the Justice League is no more. The Titans are in their spot. Hawkgirl has been sort of a mainstay on the league for many years now. And so she's without her team, without her group, and she's a little bit directionless uh, and is trying to sort of define who she is in terms of not being a part of a team. Uh, so she moves to Metropolis, um, is trying to, you know, kind of find her way a little bit, uh, reconnects with an old college friend. There's a new villain introduced that has some kind of connection to the nth metal. This is, of course, the stuff that her wings and her mace are made out of. So this is going to affect her. Um, and she connects with a fairly new character in DC canon, a character called Galaxy, uh, which is a original character that was created by uh, Axelrod, um, the writer of this. Uh, and had a graphic novel uh, a while back. And so apparently there's going to be some kind of connection moving forward between uh, Kendra and, uh, and Galaxy in this miniseries. And that's really the only thing that kind of made me do a little bit of a double take. Um, you know, when you have a, a book that is, you know, about Hawkgirl, uh, the writer coming in and bringing in an original character that they had created somewhere else um, always kind of makes me, you know, perk up my ears a little bit i guess like why uh, there better be a really good story reason i guess and not just hey i want to promote my uh, my original character that i created uh but other than that i think you know the the characterization of kendra is pretty spot on from what i've seen from her before it's a little weird to see her directionless like this but i'm also interested to see where that goes with her 
um, just a really big fan of Kendra as a character and just very much liking this. The art is really, really beautiful, like like spot on beautiful. Um, I would say the, the art even exceeds the writing for me. It, it's very, very big selling point just to see the art in action. So I'm, I like this first issue and I'm very much looking forward to see where it's going. Yeah, it's really interesting to see a lot of buzz around this character. And undoubtedly, it it also like perfectly links up with the the timeline of them announcing Isabella Merced is going to portray Hawk Girl in Superman Legacy. And this was all confirmed alongside Edie Kathegi as Mr. Terrific, Nathan Fillion as Guy Gardner. Um, so... I've seen a lot of discourse on my social media timeline. The only thing that I know remotely about this character is I enjoyed her on the original Justice League animated series. Um, I also know that there's a lot of confusing stuff when it comes to the character in comics. Um, I think there was like one explainer graphic that helped me out quite a bit. And again, I've read zero Hawk Girl comics. But um, it's really interesting and kind of cool to see this character get a spotlight again. Yeah, yeah, very much so, man. Alrighty, folks, there you have it. That's it for episode 159 of the Nerd Bloodward podcast. If you like what you just heard, you need to get on your favorite podcasting platform. Drop us a rating, drop us a review, and subscribe so you never miss another episode. You can find us on all the major podcasting platforms as well as our own spiffy website, nerdbyword.com. And you can find us across almost all the socials at nerdbyword or Twitter and Instagram individually, that nerd Dave and that nerd Chris. And as always, stay well and stay nerdy. The Nerd Byword is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez with additional drops composed by Joe Biondi. Our show art is by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available. Mm-hmm.